When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Throughline. I am Matthew, co-host of the Audio Judo podcast and producer of this brand new program. We are delighted, along with the Pantheon Podcast Network, to bring you this exciting podcast that takes a unique look at records from a conceptual point of view. This podcast will strive to find the concept that might be elusive and digs deeper at the themes, both musically and lyrically, present on the record. To gloat, I am excited that the host of this podcast is my oldest son, Christian, who brings unique insight into the music, utilizing a background in literary criticism and a thoughtful ear for music. I'm ready to see what he has to offer. I think it's going to be fun. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Throughline. is a little bit chaotic (laughs) that's kind of a silly way to start a brand new podcast and really it's a silly way to start any conversation you've only just started to listen to me speak and i've already a told you something you already know and b giving you too much to think about at essentially whatever time of day you're listening to this wherever you are whatever you're doing it's kind of a lot to think about but back To point A, it is frankly true, and we, as people, attempt every day to find new ways of organizing this chaos into patterns that we can more easily grasp. If you have to remember chaos, you have to remember every part. It's time-consuming, erratic, and downright untenable. But if it's a pattern, then you really only have to remember the pattern. That's why when you remember strings of numbers or the Great Lakes of Michigan— You remember them in parts, mnemonically, in sets. Your credit card number isn't 16 numbers, it's four big numbers. It's not Huron, Ontario, Michigan, Erie, Superior, it's Holmes. In our entertainment, we look for those same patterns, and are sometimes shocked when things fall out of those patterns, even betrayed. We've seen the hero's journey in so many films that it seems like a betrayal when a story doesn't give you that same sense of satisfaction that same repetition you've come to expect. In the same vein, pop music is so popular because it's mainly just patterns, things you've heard before that lend a sense of familiarity that eases the world around it. 
it's a safe repetition. It's something that you can rely on when the world seems so untrustworthy. And because of that, it's normal to find ourselves looking for patterns in everything. Segmenting our lives into to-do lists and calendars, talking to our friends about the meaning of a book or a movie or TV show, or why this piece of music represents this character, and even trying to determine the order of red and green lights on a stretch of road to tell if you're going to be late to work or not. Anywhere we can place chaos into order gains a meaning that we can then attribute based on our real-world experience, thus turning that which we can organize into something greater than the sum of its parts, something that we truly understand. Order gives meaning and grants insight into that which may have been formless, or merely just its disparate pieces. And this is what brings us right here to the show. Hey everyone, my name is Christian, and welcome to Throughline, brand new spinoff of the Audio Judo podcast, where we take full-length albums, EPs, collections that weren't branded as concept albums, as far as I know, and find the concept within them. This is an idea that's kind of based on my real-world experience with albums, ones that I initially had no interest in before discovering that they had been built from the ground up with a concept in mind, a storyline or emotional arc that resonated through the musical themes, lyrics, and even order of songs on the album. This idea of theorycrafting a work of music so every song informs the whole gave me an appreciation for these albums far beyond what the music may have done alone, listening in parts with no context singles or randomly shuffling through the album. Albums like 21 Pilots Blurry Face, Lord's Melodrama, Glass Animals Dreamland, and more. Albums that I may not have sought out or enjoyed before knowing about how they were built, and having been thankful since that I did. And it led me to thinking that for the most part, it's likely that nearly every album is built with the same intention. There's some reason these songs were chosen for this album and sound like this in this order. And that's what we're hoping to find in this podcast. The through line. The reason it's made the way it is, with the secondary goal of maybe getting some people to check these albums out by way of uncovering their patterns. Each episode will work in the following way. The opening will be an introduction to the artist, the album, some stats about the album, etc. Enough to lay the groundwork of who these people are and where the album sits in the pantheon of music. Then, I will be looking at the album in a bubble, attempting to ascertain the meaning of the album and its patterns while looking at as little information about what other people have theorized about the album and what the artists have said. Welcome to the high glamour world of literary criticism, or at least an approximation of it. I'll be looking at the lyrics, the music, the album artwork, the song order, and, of course, the names of the songs in the album as a whole. And finally, we'll end each episode with a rundown of information about what the artists have actually said about the album, and any running theories by fans, if there are any, including a kind of a breakdown of maybe more information about the artist and how that relates to the album as a whole, or this period in the band's kind of history. And this is where you all come in as well. I'll be posting the information about the episodes prior to their release, so if you have any information about the album, and if you have any suggestions for future episodes, leave them in the comments of those posts, or find me at audiojudo.com slash throughline. Or even if you just want to say you hate the sound of my voice, that works great too. I'll probably be upset about it, at least a little bit, but it's fun to see the little notification bubble have more numbers in it. And that's kind of really it. 
We'll see about special episodes in the future. I have some ideas in mind. But rather than waste any more of your time, let's get into it. The first episode of the Audio Judo spinoff, Throughline. The album we'll be covering today on our debut episode is, frankly, one that no one should be surprised by, considering which podcast this one spun off from. Of course, it really could only be one band, and consequently one of 19 albums. It is Power Windows by Rush. Released in 1985, this was smack dab in the middle of their discography. It was also at the climax of a musical transformation the band had been taking for the previous few albums, converting themselves to fit more within the digital and synthesizer space. This is also, also, the era where the fans of the band may draw the line between classic and new age rush, some preferring pre-power windows, some preferring post-power windows, and some fewer relishing the whole catalog. At only eight songs, it fits well with the time period it was released, and the songs and album were popular enough to warrant a platinum certification in both the U.S. and Canada, as well as peak chart success of second on the Canadian RPM 100 albums, ninth on the U.K. album chart, and tenth on the U.S. Billboard 200. For those who don't know, Rush was a Canadian progressive, or prog, rock, hard rock band that was active beginning in the year 1968, before releasing their last album in 2012, and touring their last show in 2015. 47 years, during which they released 19 studio albums and a number of collections and live albums. They have sold more than 26 million albums in the US, 40 million worldwide. 14 of their albums have gone platinum or multi-platinum in the US, and 17 have gone platinum in Canada. That's a massive portion of their discography. They have toured in at least 25 official tours, with over 2,000 performances worldwide. They have also been inducted into both the Canadian and U.S. Rock and Roll Halls of Fame. So they're kind of a big deal. Primary members were Getty Lee on bass, keyboard, and vocals, Alex Lifeson on guitar, and Neil Peart on drums and lyrics, technically. And that's really it for basically the majority of those 47 years. For those of you who don't know what progressive rock is... It's essentially long-form rock that is characterized by significant musical changes occurring within single songs. This often lends itself to much, much longer songs than you would find on a typical album. Rush's longest song, 2112 for example, is 20 minutes and 33 seconds long, being essentially one entire side of the vinyl. Now, this is not to suggest that all prog rock songs are long, But they tend to be, and even in some songs or albums when Rush starts to venture to the side of hard rock, rock adjacent, or even pop, their songs run on the longer side, with only 7 of 167 songs in their discography running below 3 minutes in length, of which 2 are instrumental and 1 is just a transitional song. This may not be in your wheelhouse. And at this point you may be thinking to yourself, well, okay, why would I do that to myself? I don't have all the time in the world to listen to 20-minute songs. And you know what? That's totally valid. You more than have the right to listen to only the things that you want to listen to and ignore the things you don't. But before you click off, let me just say two things. One, you've already made it this far. 
you clicked on the episode, and if you're asking this question, you probably don't already happen to know where we listen to Rush, but yet you've made it this far, which leads us into two. This feeling of exploring the unknown, especially in genres or styles you would have previously never have tried, is the entire point of this podcast, to gain a different perspective on something that you wouldn't have tried, or maybe gain a little bit more appreciation or even just curiosity about things outside your usual. And I'm going to be doing the same thing with you. The first two episodes of this podcast are albums I listen to, but then going forward, maybe about 50% of the albums will be ones I've never heard of, in genres or styles I have no familiarity or connection with. As far as Power Windows goes, I've listened to Rush for quite a long time. My dad introduced me, Matthew, the co-host of Audio Judo, huge lifelong fan of Rush, and obviously introduced us into the band pretty early on. I've been to five of their concerts, including the second to last show on the last tour that they ever performed, and have listened to all of their albums all the way through at least once. Power Windows, I have a special connection with. Power Windows was one of the first albums that I really sunk my teeth into and kind of listened to more and more regularly because it had an unusual sound. It more aligned with the type of music that I would have typically listened to and had started listening to at the time. So I've listened to this album a lot, obviously, but I'll be making an important distinction here before we finally go into the breakdown, and this will apply to all episodes going forward. I do not do any prior research before writing the breakdowns, and will attempt to avoid covering albums that I do have significant knowledge about regarding the actual intention of the songs or the album. In fact, all of the episodes will be written starting with the breakdown, so I don't have the album stats or information prior to the breakdown, all in an attempt at some facsimile of journalistic integrity and removal of bias. But this is a podcast, not a newsroom, so expect some very slight bending of the rules for journalism, but I'll do my fair bit to warn you in advance if that does occur. To recap, I have listened to this album, but this breakdown is devoid of all research, looking at the album in as tight of a vacuum as possible. And this will likely always be the case moving forward. So, with all of the disclaimers out of the way, and without any further ado, let's finally get into the first episode of Throughline with our first album, Power Windows by Rush. Big, loud, explosive. Big money pull a million strings. Big money hold the prize. Big money weave a mighty web. Big money draw the flies. A massive beginning to the album that sets the stage for, well, just this song. Oddly enough, Big Money, despite its repetition of its refrain, its cynicism toward the ruling party and its control through wealth, and the song's overall bombasticness, this song is not the thesis of the record. It's hardly even the point. And this is an important thing to note for albums going forward on this podcast. First song is not always the beginning of the story. So, why then is this song placed in the beginning? To answer this, we need to jump around the album a little bit and find the sentiment that's most commonly repeated. This will be a common thread to finding the meaning of an album, especially in regards to why it's ordered the way it is. We need to find the theme, idea, that's repeated the most in its lyrics, and find the song which most encapsulates this pattern. Let's go song by song and find the major themes. Obviously, 
Big money is about capitalistic greed and the ruling party of the wealthy, its control over politics, and the general disregard for fairness, the poor, and anything beyond monuments to their own power. Grand Designs is a plea against conformism and consumerism that markets itself in quantity over quality, stuff over substance. It's about capitalistic gridding, where people only exist in little-defined boxes and the desire to be free of those constraints. Manhattan Project is about the atomic bombs that were unleashed upon Japan during World War II, and the idea of being so caught up in the progress of things that you don't look at the consequences. A push toward more without looking at the cost. Marathon is a push toward more without looking at the cost to yourself. And that's where we'll stop going track by track for a moment. Already, we're starting to see a pattern. The constant capitalistic drive toward more without realizing the consequences of those actions. But that's not even the entire thesis. And as such, we start to see an interesting turn against what we've all been taught in schools. The thesis is typically at the beginning, the final sentence or two of the first paragraph of the essay. At least, that's what I learned. A very direct point-by-point breakdown of the point that's trying to be made and how it relates to the bigger picture. Power Window's thesis doesn't happen until the seventh of eight songs in the album, nearly 85% of the way through the runtime. This thesis is laid out in a motion detector. It's true that love can change us. True that love can change us, but never quite enough. Sometimes we are too tender, sometimes we're too tough. If we get too much attention, it gets hard to overrule. So often, fragile power turns to scorn and ridicule. Sometimes, our big splashes are just ripples in the pool. So, yeah. That's a weird thesis. What the hell does that even mean? Well, for starters, the album isn't just about capitalism. It's not just about greed. It's not even just about the grass being greener somewhere else. It's actually about what often happens when someone is dealt the hand of fate that ends up winning them the lottery of life. The human nature of being imperfect and the amplification of that imperfection by the power of wealth and status. Now, before I get yelled at, by Rush fans and anti-capitalists that claim that Neil would never present a pro-wealth, pro-oligarch type narrative, I'll be the first one to say that while this album presents this corruption as tragic, it also does not excuse it. The album goes as far as calling the bosses evil in territories, or saying that big money got a mean streak, big money got no soul in big money. The lyrics do not shy away of pointing out that More often than not, this power is used for bad. If we look again at Marathon, the song we started to see the pattern against an anti-capitalist main theme, we even see a reference to the wealthy doing their best to prevent others from achieving the same success, in the line, something always fires the light that gets in your eyes. 
but Marathon is also our first clear introduction into the idea that the struggle to attain these successes is a broken, tragic system. The song is constantly bringing up these ideas of perseverance and determination that begin to border on obsession and self-harm. Listen to these two sections from the middle of each verse. Test of ultimate will, the heartbreak climb uphill. Gotta pick up the pace if you want to stay in the race. And your meters may overload, you can rest at the side of the road, you can miss a stride, but nobody gets a free ride. There are platitudes here that moonlight as guilt trips to essentially say that you shouldn't rest. That if you really want to succeed, you have to push beyond your limits. Now, it could be thought that these sentences are actually intended to be motivational, but the problem is that literally the next parts of these two verses talk about how there's something additional that is missing from these tribes to fully achieve success. Something beyond blind ambition, beyond high performance, beyond even blind luck, a shot in the dark. There will more often than not be something that stops you from doing what the others have done, the light that gets in your eyes. The song even warns of burning out too fast, and that the solution is just to have endurance, just last. Even Big Money states that it's a Cinderella story on a tumble of the dice. The house always wins, the people in charge, but that doesn't stop the entire population from pouring themselves into the gamble for more. Even the music in Marathon is supporting the idea of an illusion, coating the bridge of the song in a dreamlike space with twinkling bells. Take a listen. You can do a lot in a lifetime If you don't burn out too fast You can make the most of the distance But you This use of sound as influence on the meaning is an important element of this album and will be an important part of our discussions and episodes going forward. Just as much as composers for film and television write leitmotifs for their characters and themes, or attempt to match emotion with their music, so do musical artists tie sound to meaning and sometimes even use musical ideas as themes throughout their albums. From the beginning of the album to the end, we hear a wide range of sounds, all circling this marriage of the guitars, drums, and synths. But that marriage is strained, and often meanders back and forth from song to song. Big Money, Manhattan Project, Marathon, and Territories are more guitar and drum-focused, while Grand Designs, Middletown Dreams, Emotion Detector, and Mystic Rhythms are more synth-focused. This says a lot. This immediately groups these songs into thematically similar categories, the songs that criticize and explain the tragedy of wealth, and the ones that attempt to present solutions or alternatives to those paths. Listen to the openings of the first group, and then the second group, and notice the similarities between songs in each group. (laughs) 
Now, there are two songs here that seem like they don't fit into these two groups perfectly, and that helps us transition into this idea of solutions or alternatives that the second group starts to present. First of all, Territories, the first song of side B on the vinyl, has a lot of synths going on in that beginning part, a sense of foreboding and worldly mysteriousness that then carries through the full song, but with the synth significantly less prominent. This song in particular is about overrun nationalism, the very patriotic and often aggressive way that people will defend their country and its borders, sometimes even to the extremes of war. It's also about colonialism and the senseless focus on seeming better than every other country to the point that we don't feed the people, but we feed the machines. This is by far the most cynical and pointed song in the album, so why does it not begin the same as the others in its category? Well, let's look at the other outlier first to find an answer for this, Middletown Dreams. It should be noted that this song is the immediate follower to territories, and while they cover very different ground, they have a connection. Middletown Dreams talks about the dream of something better than what you have, the drive to pursue those dreams, and often the consequences of that decision. Sure, the salesman is successful, but is he happy? Sure, the boy's leaving on the bus with the dream of becoming a musician, but is it worth leaving his best friend in silence? Sure, the middle-aged woman is becoming an artist in the big city, but she's still alone. Sure, the conquerors are satisfying their nation's desire to expand, but what's the point if you're only thinking about what was there for you back home? This opens up a new idea in the back half of the album, away from the cynicism and the beginning of an attempt at explaining why it's all so bad, and not merely just saying that it is. The idea here is that the sheer expectation that one needs to always attempt to better their life is the main problem. The statement that life is always greener on the other side is what leads to many of these problems. Life shouldn't be lived on the assumption of accomplishment, but on the understanding that it's largely unknowable and you should live beyond these two dimensions. Find the thing that makes you happy that makes life livable. Listen to the bridge of Middletown Dreams and notice the emphasis on the last few lines. Okay, now, finally, we have the main thematic idea informed by the thesis. An attempt to disprove the notion that the only way to exist is in the capitalistic expectation of constant momentum, and also presenting the possible consequences of choosing to entertain that lifestyle to its assumed extreme. This is our through line. Now, it's time to figure out how each piece of the album fits into this concept. But wait, Christian, you ask reasonably and with full consideration, what the hell does anything you've said so far have to do with the album name, and especially, its artwork? Right, yes, so as I've said at the beginning, what makes an album come together is not just the lyrics and music, but also its packaging. 
The album art, the album name, and the song names all do their part in providing context, and, furthermore, pointed decision-making toward the meaning of it all. Regardless of whether the song titles or the album title were chosen randomly, or if they were based on one of the lyrics or the central idea, the names were brought into existence with some purpose. And even randomness is a purpose. Even randomness is chosen. To quote another famous Rush lyric, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. So, before we go track by track, let's talk about the art. The Power Window's main album artwork is of a shirtless man sitting in a Spartan room, devoid of all decoration save for a few old-school television sets and their holding furniture. He sits in a chair, looking directly toward the viewer with a remote control in his hand pointed to a nearby window that's cracked open. The image seems deliberately on the brink between photograph and painting. Sorry, what? What in the world does that mean? Old TV isn't a silly pun? Okay, well, actually, wait a second. Let's look at the name of the album. Power windows on their own were a breakthrough in convenience that had begun to be added to cars as early as the 1940s. That's not a joke. Powered windows have been around in some way in primarily luxury cars since before the middle of the 20th century. They started to become standard around the mid-1980s around the time this album came out in 1985. However, again, only recently have we gotten to the point where the majority of cars on the road have powered windows. I was born in the mid-90s, and I remember my parents having cars that had roll-up windows. That sounds... bizarrely like a class situation? Now, the safety of the power windows is debatable, and anything electronic always has more points of failure than the reliable mechanical interfaces of things like roll-up windows, but there's an incredible amount of convenience and arguable coolness or confidence that exists with the ability to raise or lower a window with the push of a button. And this was widely reserved for the wealthy for more than half a decade. Our other hint from the album title, and one that starts to grasp at the totality of the thesis, is the idea that the eyes are the windows to the soul, and to the totality of our emotions and personality. Then, power, the corruptive and lonely soul-sucking race for power, is the one easy button that can be used to close those windows from the world around. Turning off others and our access to our emotions, those raw humanizing things where according to a motion detector, illusions are painfully shattered. However, the other idea presented here is that, just like with car windows, those windows to our soul, our beautiful parts, can be closed and opened. So let's look back at the cover again. If we take this reading into consideration and everything we've talked about so far, this cover seems to be of someone who had power, who had wealth, stripping themselves of that status, literally the clothes off his back, and reopening the window, the window to his soul, to his emotions. He's turning his back on the many televisions he has, a sign of wealth, all turned off and scattered about the room, turning off their propaganda and using his power his remote control, to instead open into the unknown storm outside. He has an air of a mannequin, an avatar, looking toward the viewer in almost an empty gaze, a challenge to the viewer to witness his actions and embody him. Seemingly straightforward now. We can see the story being told here, 
this scary and laudable push towards something different than the game he had been conditioned to play. Yet, just as the album presents its ideas as an alternative rather than a solution, just as the album presents this air of uncertainty to knowing what the correct path is, so too does the album art represent a multitude. Yes, he's turning his back on that wealth and power, but to do so, he has to use that wealth and power, that access to the power window to free himself, that access to the remote control. This is obviously not something that everyone should attempt, and on the other hand, is it even worthwhile or good for everyone to attempt? Now that we're all thoroughly frustrated by the lack of answers we've been given so far, or rather the lack of answers I've given, let's look at the tracks one by one to find the story being told. Big Money is pretty obvious. It pretty much just lays down the idea that as a whole, the wealthy class tends to be pretty negative. There's references to building monuments to their opulence while knocking castles down, an aggressive reverence for their present and legacy that completely overrides any respect for basically anything else. There's references to pulling a million strings, talking about the control of politics and institutions through immense wealth and status. But most importantly, there's a heavy repetition on the carrot-on-a-stick ideology. Make a million dreams, a Cinderella story, building a stairway, done of power of good. These are good things, but are always sandwiched by other horrible things. There is no good in a vacuum here. They'll build you a stairway, but it will lead you down, locked underground, and there's nothing really to be done because that power is the carrot. It's the desire, and it's nothing but self-perpetuating. Grand Designs, on the other hand, is our first positive song. Well, not so much positive as rebellious. Here we have a critical look at the things that this rampant wealth and capitalism have birthed. Unfocused, unfiltered, unabated consumerism. So much so that finding the real thing is like a rare and precious metal beneath a ton of rock. Here also we get the first clue toward the vastness of this problem, and the presentation of the idea that you and your worth in this society is nothing more than a teardrop in the ocean. However, there's this reckless sense of optimism here, a sense of rebelliousness despite the overwhelming and titanic odds in that your teardrop, your life in this ocean, is enough to be the piece of a push to overflow this uneasy system. Your desire to be different is enough to break the surface tension. So we have the villain, the rich, and the protagonist, you, the one who chooses to go against the grain, against the run of the mill that smooths and cuts away. David versus Goliath, the teardrop against the ocean, and the wealthy who leave mighty wakes. Manhattan Project, however, complicates this binary. Tone of the song isn't directly critical. It's almost somber. It presents the scientists and the people responsible for the atomic bombs as misguided, that they ended up getting more than they bargained for. 
for the most part, these people aren't villains because they were trying to accomplish something that no one had before. But the issue arises in, again, the constant push for more. It goes too far, as it always does in this system, escalated beyond natural proportion because of the greed of fame, of power, of wealth, and of strength. And this tinge of somberness extends even further, a reference to the pilot of the plane that dropped the bomb, and imagining the feeling he must have had, the complicated mixture of his personal emotions regarding the deed, and the importance of following the orders, the orders that he planned to carry out in hopes of himself climbing the military ladder, one so closely tied to the capitalistic one. Listen to this verse, the urgency in Getty's voice, the attempt to capture this earth-shaking moment. is so flawed that, left unchecked, true ambition is inextricable from its inevitable consequence. Marathon then ticks to the normal person, the one caught in the gears of this endless forward momentum. We've covered this one quite a bit already, the idea of pushing toward a goal that is constantly moving, one that is constantly sabotaging you to keep it exclusive, the one that causes your life to be tainted by the risk of burnout, chasing a dream that may not even be your own. But this song's place in the story also extends to a similar sentiment introduced in Grand Designs, one of insignificance in the grand scheme of the world. Your life and the decisions you make in your life being comparatively infinitesimal. The glory you may achieve is like a streak of lightning that flashes and fades in the summer sky. Especially in the timeline of the world as a whole, your life, and even humanity in its entirety, is just a blip. We'll come back to this idea in a second. Territories is our last Consequences song. This actually may be the most straightforward on the record, talking about how the delineation between nations leads to needless violence and xenophobia. It's a call for globalization as opposed to nationalization, and mirrors the main theme by abstracting the ideas of capitalism to imperialism. It's largely a plea to focus on the things that matter more than pride or race to be better, and again, the idea of consequences from the endless competitive nature of the accumulation of power. It's a bit more surface-level conceptually than the others, but still a banger of a song. Middletown Dreams, however, is anything but surface-level. This complicates everything so far. Up to this point, this dream of better has been marked as negative, leading to negative consequences, atomic bombs, burnout, Traps, tricks, greed, violence, colonialism, etc. The list goes on and on and on. But here, dreams are vehicles. Dreams are hope for those in situations where life doesn't give them enough hope on its own. Dreams are used in 
a kind of Kierkegaardian fantasy of a better life that won't ever happen, but is just enough to grant them enough pleasantness to carry on with their life. Listen to the chorus here. The idea of dreams is double entendre here, being ones that physically transport you from your situation into another, and ones that spiritually do the same. And the song is actually, again, critical of those who choose to leave and actively chase those dreams, but only when they're at the cost of something else. The song also actively celebrates those who stay and choose not to chase their dreams as their life's not unpleasant in their little neighborhood. So then we have a new idea, that it's okay to dream, that it's even fantastic to dream, if that doesn't lead to further consequences than it's worth, if you don't end up living an empty life, if you don't end up abandoning your family, chosen or otherwise. Life isn't long enough to suffer for something the system deems essentially unattainable other than by chance. So, how are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to break the cycle and give into a new direction for life, one that isn't fueled by the machine constantly being fed? Well, according to a motion detector, it involves opening that window to our souls, like the man on the album artwork. Listen to the first verse. When we Essentially, the song is about living with the pain of reality and not taking it so seriously, acting like a fool, enjoying life and everything it throws. The song argues that the emotional parts of us are the beautiful parts, the true aspects of ourselves that differentiate us and expose who we are and can become. We then also get another glimpse at the insignificance of humanity, this time pointing more critically toward the rich and famous. Yes, even those who have everything, who think they're making big splashes, are really just making ripples in the pool. The chase the song offers is worthless, because the actions one person can make are just a moment, a small flicker before fading away. So why not make those moments worthwhile to yourself? Yet, the album knows that this is a very privileged view. The album knows that not everyone has the ability, the power to choose this path. Likewise, represented in Middletown Dreams, and even sometimes underlined in Marathon and Manhattan Project, there is some good in dreaming, and hoping, and chasing more. And so, the album ends with Mystic Rhythms, a song that seems unconnected at first, but represents the totality of this idea. There's really no way to know the best way to live one's life. The more we think about, the greater the unknown. Listen to verse 2 here, and notice the last two lines.
suspend our disbelief and we are entertained. Entertainment, like this podcast, is boundless and information is readily available. Modest wage increases are always within sight and it's impossible to have all the information, so why try so hard to figure it out? The song carries forth this mystical sound, entrancing the listener into a soundscape that separates itself from the album and asks the listener to join on this thought experiment, wondering what else there could be. And so, we have the end of Power Windows, an album that presents us with a broken world, our world, rampant with greed and distractions, an endless trap of pulling people into the promise of better and more often than not dashing those dreams through the mere convection cycle of wealth, circling in the currents laid out with only chance to push them nearer the surface. You can choose to exit this circle if you have the ability and live a life differently, but this life, this choice comes with its own consequences outside of the mold, and sometimes it's easier to live with the hope of a dream than to live with no hope at all. All in all, the sheer act of dreaming is not the problem, but the whirlwind of waylaid violence and conformity to this broken system lays a tainted hand on ambition. The only cure to be truthful and honest with yourself and your emotions. And at the end of all of this, there's always another option. You can still choose to just live and vibe with nature and the world around you and let the mystic rhythms of the universe capture your thoughts and carry you away. Stick around until after the break to hear a conversation about what the artist and other people have said about the album with one of the co-hosts of Audio Judo, Matthew. Welcome back to Throughline. So we just finished talking about the breakdown of the album, my thoughts through listening through and digesting and processing the music. Um, and now we're going to talk about what the artist has to say about the album and what some of the fan theories are about some of the songs and some of the themes that are kind of going on. And I could think of no better person to help me kind of work through this album than the co-host of Audio Judo and my dad, Matthew. Uh, hello. hello, everybody. Hey, thanks for having me on. Of course. It's, uh, it's, it's a pleasure. The, the pilot episode, it's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to make sure that it tied into... Uh, everything that we've been doing so far, everything that you guys have been doing on the uh, on Audio Judo, so Rush kind of was the no-brainer. <laughs> well, yeah, I would say that this is probably uh, in my wheelhouse. This is the sweet spot of my uh, music history, so it's a good choice. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, m me, for example, like, I've listened to this album a lot, and I've kind of, like, started to try and figure out the themes and things like that, early on trying to to get through this and this is kind of one of the albums that I listened to the most from Rush but I think going through and like really kind of deep diving into what the artist has to say about the album and other things like that Rush didn't say a lot about this album that I could find like as a whole yeah they don't uh that was never their MO they never spent a lot of time really deconstructing their own music to really any degree 
I think the most they've ever talked about a record is probably moving pictures because, you know, that's the fan favorite. So they, they spend a lot of time on shows being interviewed for papers and stuff and, and really being asked to, to, uh, break it down. And even that they didn't fully and never lyrically, they did, you know, musically what, what they were listening to, what, other music was influencing them at the time and how they were writing musically or how they were uh, recording, but never lyrically. They left that to Neil and Neil parsed stuff out through the years as he saw fit, whether that be in a, a, a book or a, a tour book or, or some random interview with a, you know, a drumming magazine, right. he, he would leak it out here and there, but never, never full on, this is what I'm talking about. So, so yeah, it would be difficult to really kind of pinpoint exactly what the members of the band ever really thought about what the meaning behind the lyrics was. Yeah, I mean, even in the liner notes and things like that of the album, I it was really just kind of about the songwriting and uh, Neil getting excited about working in the studio on the volcano. <laughs> yeah, that's really their thing. And I mean, I mean, if you if you take a look like an outsider's point of view at this record this this was a really interesting point of the band's career right the, the, right. the classic rush the classic rush period as we know it effectively ended in 1982 when the band released signals and that was the last album they released with terry brown as their producer and he had been producing everything from their debut to that album so then they right. release uh, grace under pressure in 84 and it's a really dark record way darker than anything up until that time because it was a really dark period for them. They fired a producer and they couldn't find a new producer. So they essentially self-produced and they were trying to experiment with all these new sounds and technology, but it was really strained. You could feel like the tension. So, you know, when this album came about, they hired an entirely new producer, a producer that was really responsible for singles in England. He wasn't a, okay. really a record producer, and he was more of a pop producer than anything else, but he was a proper producer, and he came to the table and, and encouraged them to do completely the opposite of everything Terry Brown had told them to do. Terry Brown wanted him to be a, a, a power rock trio, drums, bass, guitar, that's it. And Peter Collins came to him and said, hey, you should try everything. You should try sure. strings, choir, you know, MIDI, new sounds, tribal sounds, all kinds of stuff, and they took advantage, so this album was much freer. And in that same uh, vein, Neil, uh, Neil Peart was really coming into his own as a writer of humanity and less about fantasy. He was writing more about what he saw, more about what he experienced. Therefore, he was writing much more thematically on an album than at any time before this. And in a vacuum, you could say that Grace Under Pressure was about technology, whether embracing it or running from it. But this album saw his ideas much more distilled than any time before. You know, it was really boiled down to what the concept was he was trying to get across, whether he was verbose about it or not. Sure. So, you know, this was, this was new Rush. This, you know, old Rush had kind of faded. This was brand new Rush. And, and I remember, you know, as a kid of 13... When it was released, I loved it. Right, like the album that you know, the album that follows this one, "Hold Your Fire." This one kind of spoke to me. The music was strange and exotic, like really unlike Rush. There's new sounds, you know, new energy, and the words 
something that as a music lover for 50 years I have always gravitated to were much more important to me now. You know, that more specifically, uh, you talked about it in the breakdown. Songs like Grand Designs and Middletown Dreams were, they were suburban songs, I guess. And they, songs that spoke to my world. You think about you know, what you broke down, you know, a teardrop in the ocean, swimming against the stream, dreams transport desires, drive you when you're down. Right. Some worldviews are spacious and some are merely spaced. That's how I felt as an insignificant teenager in the suburbs. So that part about dreaming was so important uh, to this record and then in turn to me. And I always suspected, you know, Neil had way more intention behind his lyrics than I even knew, right. uh, even though that I knew the theme of this record was power. But, you know, after listening to your breakdown, you illuminated it in such a way uh, that I'll never listen to it the same way again. And I think after listening to it for 37 <laughs> well, years, I think that's a great thing. It still has things to give. And that's what's a better testament to music than, it, you know, after this long, it still has gifts to give. Right. Yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of the point of this whole thing is just is being able to gain an appreciation for albums as a whole that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise because you're like, oh, well, it's just kind of like. It's just like a rock song or like even pop albums, just like a pop song. But like every artist has a point to what they're trying to say or point they're trying to make. And there's no better example of that than in album construction. I agree um, but with going, that. Yeah. <laughs> going back, I think, to uh, what Rush has said about the album, I really was only able to find one or two things. Um, I found a section, part of an interview that I saw found on Rockline from 1985, November 18th, 1985, where uh, Getty's talking about the cover. And I realized as I was looking at this that the guy on the front cover is not looking toward the viewer. <laughs> Even <laughs> though I say it in the breakdown, he's totally looking toward the viewer. He's not. He's looking slightly to the side. Right. It doesn't defeat the point that much, but I feel like I should have maybe looked at the art a little closer. But basically, basically, Getty's saying, um, just in response to the cover, he says, it is pretty abstract. I love the scene of this sort of Billy Bibbit-like character confused as to his reality. The windows he's looking out are, in a sense, very powerful windows. This is an album of power. We are talking about different types of power and the way they affect us and the way they affect him. The boy is a little shaken as to which way he should look and which window is his reality, which is way different than how I interpreted that character. <laughs> That's okay. And what you may or may not know about Rush is Getty has usually zero to do with any of the album construction, like the artwork. That's all Neil. Sure. So he probably didn't have any idea. They may have been in a discussion or two. What's funny, you know who Billy Bibbit is, right? Uh, he says Billy Bibbit. character from a novel, right? Yeah, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. He's, so he's in a in an institution while he's... Yeah. <laughs> so what what he's talking about. So a little bit, a little bit crazy, so... Yeah, I can get that interpretation. It's it's interesting that he classifies this character as unknowing of his situation, which I think is mm. is a little bizarre considering the themes that are presented on the album. Yeah, I would I wouldn't give that too much credence actually. But. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know he made the album, but still. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like they were just like, yeah, it's about power, and then kind of was like, all right, yeah figure it out <laughs> yeah now let's now let's talk about the guitars so yeah right right <laughs> i found i found this one review that i thought was weird and i know that 
uh, Neil kind of had a lot of religious undertone in his music, but there's this uh, review. I think it's a review by Brad Berzer on Progarchy. Oh yeah, Progarchy. He's talking about Manhattan Project, and he says, interestingly enough for Peart, he continues to hearken back to religious language and themes, specifically Catholic, referring again and again to a world without end. Yeah, I don't know why that makes that Catholic. Yeah, like, he's talking about Manhattan Project, which is one of their most researched historical kind of songs, at least according to Big Time in the liner notes. Yeah, he spent, he read like 10 books on the subject before he wrote that song. Right, yeah, and it seems, yeah, it seems like a kind of like attribute religion to something that, well, it's kind of like yeah. an interpretation thing. I'm just trying to think maybe like where you can, where else you can pull that in the album, like pull any sort of kind of religious overtone thing in the album. But it feels I mean, I, very... It's spiritual. I don't know sure. religious. It, there, there's spiritual elements in, in the songs. But right. if there's if there was more an anti-religious, organized religion rock star than Neil Peart, I don't know who that is. Because right. he was, to mix a metaphor, he was devoutly anti-religion but spiritual he he could find the 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 spiritual in nature and in the things that he loved to do so over the years there's been a lot of critics uh, literary people that have tried to uh, attach religious elements to rush's music you know 2112 and and all that kind of stuff and and it's a miss just because that's not who they are that's not who neil is so yeah, I don't I don't give that much credence either. Right. Yeah, it's I was thinking maybe like in terms of Middletown Dreams, I mean you have like I referenced Kierkegaard, and Kierkegaard was a pretty religious philosopher mm-hmm. type individual. And I talk about how middle Middletown Dreams is kind of this idea of like he Kierkegaard presented this idea of like the hope for something if you believe it enough is just as good as the real thing kind of Mm -hmm. and i talk about that a little bit in middletown dreams where some people are kind of like fine with the way that their life is with their small town kind of aspirations and stuff because they can imagine themselves in a better situation but they don't necessarily need to be there because they're like oh well the fantasy is good enough but just because it's a religious philosopher that came up with that idea doesn't make it innately religious. Correct. The other thing that this guy said that I thought was, I don't necessarily want to say like missing the point, but kind of like looks at the album in a, in an interesting light that closes off the theme a little bit. Uh, the same guy saying it for a motion detector, talking about a motion detector, he says in the end, in a common peer theme, man must restrain his reaction toward others recognizing that one does not need approval of another should integrity already exist in the original act. A true man judges himself. That's very much, Neil. Okay, I I thought that maybe it would have been not so much, because the way that I kind of have been reading the lyrics to the album and reading the lyrics to Rush for a long time is not necessarily that... Like, I understand that Neil was a very closed-off person Mm -hmm. in public settings, but he was very open and has always been very open in his lyrics and in the way that he writes his themes and things like that. And so I feel like he's presenting himself to the world. He's turning himself outward. And I feel like in part, in some way, it, there's kind of this idea of not so much needing approval from others, but longing for that connection with others. 
and I don't know, this, this reading of it just seems, seems very closed off. Neil's always been a dichotomy because, you know, everyone says he was, he's super private, super private. You know, he doesn't want to be, wants to be left alone after concerts. He wa- doesn't want to talk to fans. He doesn't want to do meet and greets. He doesn't want to do anything like that. Don't ask him for autographs. You know, leave him alone. Yet, of the three, he has written, essentially, eight books that reveal exactly what kind of person he is. Right. And I think there's this weird disconnect because he wants to let everyone know what kind of person he is without being bothered by other people to find out who he is. Like, to be asked those, don't approach him. Let him reveal himself to you in his own time, at his own pace, when he's ready. And I think that's, you know, his lyrics were always a reflection of who he is and what he sees. And he definitely revealed that emotional part of him through his lyrics over the years, but he also closed himself off to the public in a a physical sense. He he kept everyone at arm's distance. So it's kind of hard to interpret because I I think, I think in some, some respects, he was definitely the most open of the three without being the most approachable of the three. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was, what what I was getting at. And I don't know, it, it, I, I kind of get the the sentiment that's that's being said here by this reviewer. It's just, it feels very cold mm-hmm. for what the what he was trying to do, especially on this song. This song is exceptionally vulnerable, vulnerable. Yeah. And very, very obviously about being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and this specific take seems to just be like, oh, well, you just only judge yourself. <laughs> <laughs> which i guess i guess sure um and, and that kind of goes into the part of the idea where i like part of me feels that i was adding maybe a little bit too much in the same vein that what this person is doing here maybe adding a little bit too much pessimism into the album because there's a review on the cygnus x1 fan site or someone's talking about marathon and they kind of just sum it up as saying it's really a deeper song about the triumphs one can achieve in life and i read marathon is very well, not very, but the kind of like underlined or subtextually very negative. <laughs> uh, and I think there's arguments for for both of those readings, which is sure. what makes this podcast kind of exciting is because it is a different point of view of, about what a lot of us thought. And and like I said, like 37 years I've been listening to it. I've never listened to it quite like this because on its surface if you listen to marathon it is just about hey if you get knocked down keep going and keep going and keep going yeah. and keep going and even the visuals in concert were you know a green laser man on the screen running <laughs> running 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 and that reinforces like oh oh this is a song about you know not quitting and i wonder don't quit i wonder in some way if that's a generational thing because we're kind of like starting to get to a point where um, younger generations and partly mine are like, yeah, labor sucks. Having to hustle your way through life sucks. <laughs> like having to constantly <laughs> be striving for more and constantly be doing all of this. So I think in part that maybe why I read the album the way that I did and why I specifically read the song the way that I did, because all of this talk, this constant talk about needing to keep pushing and needing to keep doing more and more and more and more sounds exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) 
And that's and that's how I was raised. Like, okay, well, you know, if you get laid off, you just go find another job and you you go to work. And you keep going back to work. And you keep trying and getting what you want to get. That's and I'm like, that's what that song is. Like, okay, just keep going. Right. We'll just keep yeah. we'll just keep going. But I think I think your take is is valid. And knowing the kind of person that Neil was from, I say knowing, but I couldn't possibly <laughs> know him. Gleaning right. what I could from years and years of reading what he's written, he was a pessimistic guy to some degree. And there is a note of pessimism in, in a lot of his writing. And I wouldn't say he was a pessimist overall, but that definitely comes through, especially in later albums. It's a little more pronounced. So, yeah, I don't think you're wrong. I think there's uh, degrees of right. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, like, the same review kind of talks about Middletown Dreams and is very specifically just saying, like, oh, yeah, it shows how many people just dream of the day when they can leave their drab existence in their small hometown behind and chase their dreams. And I kind of read the album as the opposite of that, where it's about <laughs> the people that don't leave and, like, how that's fine. Like, <laughs> it's good enough well, for them. Like, you don't have to go. Like, especially if it's going to make your situation worse, like it did with a lot of those people that ended up chasing their dreams in the verses and that's why the this is the gift that keeps on giving because because there's still more to extract there like i mentioned to you before as a lifelong rush fan i i know i'm at the point of of this journey where that you know there will never be another new rush album again right. so all we have to look back on is you know this incredible archive of material that they produced already and start deconstructing it to see what else is there and what what more gifts we can get from it and you you're kind of providing that avenue with this record like like I'm listening to rush albums in a different way now like like well what the hell was he talking about I should try to figure that out so yeah cuz because that's that's what we have left sure yeah yeah i mean and th that's kind of the background for the whole podcast too is like being an English major, going through all of those classes and things like that, you're looking at old books and being like, all right, how can I look at this differently than the hundreds, if not thousands of people that have looked at it that way before? And just kind of applying exactly. those same ideas. And that's why I'm excited for this uh, podcast. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't wait to see what, uh, what comes next. All right. So I have one kind of negative review that I wanted to say. Okay. And then just some kind of like minor thoughts and things like that. And then, but yeah, let me read this. Let me read this. <laughs> I thought this was funny. Considering how obvious a lot of the, the, the album's themes kind of appear to be on a surface level, but then there's a lot more underneath. Uh, this person says the album bounces around on subjects conceptually involving power, but is underdeveloped and unworthy of the group's legacy. Rush now writing trite complaints about money, working too hard, and international disputes. Who wrote that review? Robert Christigau? <laughs> it's just like, a, it's, I don't necessarily want to say the name of the person because I'm kind of <laughs> saying it in negative light, but it's on metalarchives.com. <laughs> <laughs> it just it's it's exceptionally reductive and that's and and I kind of want to talk about it a little bit because that's kind of the I'm saying that like oh that's the point of the podcast a lot this is the pilot episode so I kind of got to lay the groundwork a little bit but it's kind of the point of the podcast is just like this is really reductive <laughs> yeah have you boiled it down to oh they're talking about money why 
Because the name of the song is Big Money? They're complaining like, about power. Yeah, I mean... what? Why? Because yeah. the name of the album is Power Windows? Right, yeah. But like The idea is like, oh, they're complaining about power, but they're complaining about what power does and how power corrupts and what you can do about it and what you can't do about it and things like that. And it, there's just like a lot more to look at than just like, oh, well, yeah. they said that people that have a lot of money are evil, so they're not trying that hard <laughs> to write these lyrics. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah, if you look at one line, maybe. Yep. There's probably a throwaway line here and there. So what? Yeah, it, it, there's kind of like a weird, a lot of weird hate around territories because people say it's too obvious. And I feel like that's also reductive. Like, does a song need to have all the, the subtext in the world to say something meaningful? No, it does not. Right. Just throwing the line out there and better beer is good enough for me. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so that's kind of the point is... I want to overall show the art of the album and why it's important to look at things in a new way, because not only is this something that helps you find new music and things like that, but finding ways to look at albums and finding ways to look at life and patterns and things like that. I talk about patterns a lot in the opening, finding these patterns and, and really giving them a good working over a good sense of criticism kind of gives you more insight into the world around you, gives you more of an ability to understand what's happening and react to what's happening and maybe gain more insight into your life and how you function and how you can be better. So I think that's one of the, the beautiful things that I've always found about writing essays and then extrapolating to this is you find more insight into yourself and your world by looking at something differently. For sure. I couldn't agree with more. And I think that's uh, that's part of the reason why I'm excited about this. I'm also excited. <laughs> but I think that wraps it up for everything that I had to say, unless you have anything else. Nope. I'm excited. And we at Audio Judo wish you nothing but the best. We're here to support you. And we can't wait. All right. Where can they find you at Audio Judo? You can find us at audiojudo.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash audiojudo or Twitter at Audio Judo, or Instagram at Audio underscore Judo. And you can always drop us a line via email at info at audiojudo.com. Awesome. And you can find more episodes of Throughline when they come out at audiojudo.com slash Throughline. Or check us out on social media, or drop us a line on the website and things like that. I'm always looking forward to hearing what people have to say, any suggestions about upcoming albums, especially considering we're going to give the lineups out in advance. Um, so you can send me what you think of the album, what you think each album means coming up, so we can kind of get a good sense of everyone's theories and things like that and put them in the episode. Uh, and if these theories end up getting too long, we might make special episodes where we talk about the album a little bit longer. But yeah, with that all being said, I think that wraps it up for the pilot episode of Throughline. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Before you all go, one final thought. If you are writing a review and you say that something speaks volumes, please explain what you mean. Have a good night, everyone. We'll see you next time. <laughs>